Welcome to Deepen with Pastor Joby Martin. The Church of 1122 is a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're praying this message helps you deepen your relationship with Him. Now let's dive in. Okay, Easter weekend. The tomb is empty, you guys. So fun. Mount Calvary, here we are, the last weekend. I mean, what a journey this has been. We started on Mount Moriah, and here we are, seven mountains later, on Mount Calvary. I'm so excited to talk today. I have so much content. I don't even know we're going to be here locking, as you say. So I hope our video team's ready. But no, um, there's just so much that we can talk about. So we're going to dive right in to chapter seven, Mount Calvary. The title is, What is Finished? And usually every episode we ask what the title means, but... This week feels a little different because we know that it is finished. That's what is finished. It is finished. And we're going to talk all about it. So um, let's dive in to number one. The fun fact is that we're on the same mountain as Mount Moriah, which I didn't know that until you preaching that, that where we start in the Bible is where we end. So can you just give us like what you're feeling about all this and how we have gone through the whole all the mountains beginning to end, and here we are on Mount Calvary. Where do you want to start? I mentioned it in week one's sermon, just as an aside or a cute little phrase. I, I didn't really mean much by this, but when I said, when I was introducing the whole series and said we're going to start out on Mount Moriah, we're going to end up on Mount Calvary, it's going to be the same mountain. <clears throat> and as I was talking about... uh when Isaac asked Abraham, where's the sacrifice? And he said, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. You ever think about how crazy it is that they made it back to that mountain? It's crazy. Like, it's not like, so Abraham didn't build anything there. The little wood altar is not going to be there by the time (laughs) Moses or Joshua finally gets back there. And then that is the mountain that they decide to build the temple on. And then that is the mountain. I mean, you think about it. I know that when, when they crucify Christ in Jerusalem, they do it just outside the, the gates or the, the wall, but that whole mountaintop is, uh, is known as Mount Moriah. This is, and, and this is why the Bible always says that they went up to Jerusalem, because it's the highest place in Israel. So no matter where you are, it's up. And there's no way that they could have known. I mean, they didn't have, they don't have Google Maps. They don't have a drone to, hey, run this up here. <laughs> and even with the Kidron Valley and, 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 the, and the different valleys there, it's, it's the first letter of the name of God. So, they, so when the Old Testament says God's name is imprinted upon the city, how do they even know that stuff? There's some of that kind of stuff that just makes me say, you can't make this stuff up, man. You, can't. you just can't make this Timing up. Timing-wise, what is the gap? Like, how many years are we talking between Abraham up on Mount Moriah to Jesus on Mount Calvary? It's close to 2,000. Yeah, I mean, you literally can't make that up. Right. Crazy. Okay, so before we get to Mount Calvary, we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that you talk about in the book, which I love, is... Um, well, I don't love it. It makes me sad. But is that Jesus wasn't his God, but also dreaded the cross. So he's fully human and he's fully God. But can you talk about how do we come to terms with this idea that he is God 
in human form, simultaneously he dreads the cross. That's a powerful statement, dreads the cross. Yes, but for the joy set before him, he endured it. So he, uh, we sing this song, Phil Wickham song, something about battle. Battle belongs, yep. Yeah, and it says we see the cross, he sees the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how he makes it. Right. <clears throat> it's way more than the physical punishment that he's going to endure, okay? It's got to be. And the reason I say that with great confidence is the unbelievable amount of ink that there is throughout church history of martyrs who have been tortured and uh, like sang psalms while they were doing it or quoted Bible verses or shared the gospel or there's stories of men being burned alive and other men are screaming and this guy goes, play the man. I mean, there's... So it's not just the, it's not the physical that he's primarily afraid of or dreading. I don't have words to describe what it means that one God in three, three persons, the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal with God the Father, is going to experience for the only time ever in all of eternity past or future anything other than the lavish love of the Heavenly Father on him. And for a perfect, holy God, not just Jesus walking on the planet and he got it right for 33 years, but the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who spoke everything into existence, is going to become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So now we love to get to the back half of that, and as we should, because that's the gospel. But he is going, he is going to become sin the thing he hates the most and receive the crushing from God the Father and that is dreadful. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how I don't even know how to put it. Imagine I don't know. Imagine enduring hate from the one that you were one with. Like your husband, Wes, mm-hmm. you only been married like three seconds, but just imagine three years, thank you. Well <laughs> I know what they're saying. I know. But yeah, it'd be, it's you know, you'd be like, yeah. yeah. So, and Jesus has never in all of eternal history experienced anything but the lavish love of the Father upon mm-hmm. him. And now he is going to experience one, what it means to be sin, and then two, what it means to endure the wrath of God for our sin. And that will make you fall down in the Garden of Crushing, the Garden of Gethsemane sweat drops of blood, and say to your boys, can you just get up and pray with me? I feel, he literally says, I feel like I'm going to die. Jesus felt like he was going to die before he goes to the cross. Mm -hmm. I want to spend most of our time today on the seven things he says Mm -hmm. um, on the cross. But, and for anyone listening, if you want a really powerful picture of um, the beating that Jesus took. Go back to the last episode and listen to Charles yeah. unpack yeah. being in Israel and and witnessing that because I think that gives a really that imagery is so so powerful. Um, and I and I really love how we've kind of related things to when you all have been in Israel and seeing this because it reinforces that these are real things, real people. In your Israel experiences. Were you ever where he comes in on the donkey and they're yelling Hosanna? Can you talk to us a little bit about that leading up to the crucifixion? Well, one of the sweetest spots is, um, so it's a lot tighter than you would think. At least that was my take, you know, first time. And it's because they don't have cars. So like (laughs) Bethany 
is it's like within a mile of of like where the temple is. And so when when Jesus is coming in on uh, what we would call Palm Sunday, he would have gotten a donkey up in Bethany, come over there's like a trail right through right through the Mount of Olives, and there's a spot on the mountain, and it's like the last spot that you can still see over the wall into Jerusalem where the people would have been, and they think that's where he stopped and Jesus cries. Mm-hmm. And he says and and he's weeping for his own people for Jerusalem. And he says, Where if I, I wish I could gather you under my wings like a like a mama hen does his chicks, you know, her chicks. And so he does that there and then he would go down and around and then right up the southern steps that we talked about a ton last week, and that would be a straight shot into into the temple. Wow. Um, and I love going there so much. We've heard. Yeah. On this podcast. <laughs> I love I love the thought in that moment when he walks in, he's just come out of Jericho. He's come up the Jericho Road, rides on the colt, the donkey, whatever. And they're screaming, Hosanna. Mm-hmm. You know, blessed he comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders don't want to anger Rome. So they're telling him to tell these people to hush because we don't want them to think a rebellion is starting because mm-hmm. they'll, they'll squash that. So tell all these folks to shut up. And I love this. He says, nah, I'm not doing it because even if I did, the rocks would cry out. Mm-hmm. And I just, I mean, you standing in Jerusalem, they ain't nothing but rock. That's it. So <clears throat> There's also another that. parade going on at the same time that nobody ever really talks about that much. Let's talk about it. So mm-hmm. a week before this, mm-hmm. a week before Passover, guess who's be coming to town? Pontius Pilate, because mm. he didn't live there all the time. He had like he was like the governor of a whole area. And so, in order to be there on Jerusalem's high holy day, he would need to come in early. And so, he would have been coming through one of the more glorious gates on the other side of the city, on the side of the city. Charles talked about this a lot last week, where Pilate's Praetorium is. Praetorium means like courtyard. And he had built this big palace thing. And so, uh, like, on the on the far, I guess that would be, like, the northwestern yeah, corner of so. Jerusalem, there would have been a, another parade happening simultaneous. But he would not have come on on a lowly donkey. He would have come on on, like, a great white horse pulled with, you know, huge carriage and a whole bunch of pomp and circumstance. Army in front of him, bands playing, and he is marching in like a king. And Jesus is marching in like the king of kings, just of a different kingdom. There are so many nuances. It's like we were just talking about at the beginning that you look at it and just it's undeniable that this is true. Uh, you make the connection of the acacia wood, the significance of that. Will you just talk about that a little? <clears throat> so I think we were together. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we'll do if we go to, when we go to Israel and when we go back is we go down to the Dead Sea and uh, kind of between the Dead Sea and, and up to Jerusalem is is En Gedi. It's the place where when David was on the run from crazy King Saul, he found a bunch of caves and he hid in these caves, okay? And so we're walking up to him and the, and the little tour guide guy's telling us stuff and all the all the, like the lights on my dashboard are going off because like I just I've been studying the Bible a lot for the last 30 plus years, okay? And so then he just points to this tree 
And he goes, this is what they used for the crown of thorns. And he just kind of pulls off a branch. And it's, I mean, these thorns are like as long as your middle finger, Mm -hmm. at least. Mm -hmm. And they're pretty thick around the bottom. And then they get real dang, I mean, sharp, 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 sharp. And they're they're very substantial. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to break one off with your fingers, okay? And then I don't know if I asked or if he just said, yeah, that's an acacia tree. And I'm like, what? And he looks at me like... (laughs) What do you mean, what? I'm like, you're kidding me, right? He goes, no, it's an acacia tree. And I was like, you know what the Ark of the Covenant was made out of? And he goes, oh, yeah, acacia wood. I'm like, how do you say, oh, yeah, this is your job, bro. This is all you ever do. And you've never, like, put this thing together that the the very type of tree that would crown our king on the way to the cross was the same wood that God specifically told Moses in Exodus to build it this way and it would hold the law of God. So the thing that holds the broken law of God is the same tree that crowns not only the lawgiver but the one that would perfectly keep that law of God and that same wood, that those thorns in his brow would cause blood to trickle out of the Lamb of God who would not just cover over the broken laws but would take away the sin of everyone that would believe. It's just crazy. The details. Um, Yeah, man. Yeah. So. (laughs) Okay. Anything either of you want to say before we get into the seven things on the cross? Um, (laughs) I know there's a lot, but yeah, there's a, there's a ton, right? So for whatever reason, I've always like felt sorry for Pilate. I mean, I know that he was a part of, God's preordained plan, and I know that... I tend to think he believed that Jesus was who he says he is. He was trying to get out of it. His wife was like, bro, you better not do this. (laughs) I mean, it's a loose translation, but that's what she says, right? And so there's a couple things that he says. One of the things is I think if you... There's some verses, even though I'm like a happy Calvinist, there's still some verses about Pharaoh's hardened heart that makes you a little uncomfortable. Like, did he not have a chance at all? But if you study Exodus... I think Pharaoh, the Bible says Pharaoh hardens his own heart seven times before it says God hardened his heart. Hmm. So there's a little like give and take here, okay? And so I, th- you see Pharaoh wanting to give to set Jesus free, but he's more concerned about what the people think than what God thinks, and he does that long enough that he gets to the point where mm-hmm. he's the guy out, yeah. that slams the gavel down and says to an innocent man, he knows he's innocent, he's got to know it. Because he says it, I find their fault in this man. And when he asked this question, I think he's asking himself this question, and it's the most important question. What shall I do with this man named Jesus? Mm-hmm. And instead of, instead of like trusting what's going on inside of him, maybe this is speculation, but I think i got some verses behind me. Instead of that, he, he turns over that decision to this mob, and they say, crucify him, kill him. Then he says, I wash my hands of this, which you don't get to do that. And then he says this. This is the most damning and blessing phrase. May his, blood be, may his blood be on your heads and the generations following you. So that either is a blessing of salvation. Mm-hmm. Like the moment we said, mm-hmm. may the blood of Jesus cleanse us, there is a generational blessing there, or it's the greatest curse you'll ever have in your life, that, that your rejection of Jesus you will take into eternity. Good. Charles, can you give us a picture before we get into the seven things of, because we're, we're skipping, you know, 
the crucifixion or the, the lead up to him being on the cross. Can you give us a picture between Pontius Pilate and then he's, he's on the cross with the saying the seven things, just a quick version of how, how we get there. What are we seeing? What kind of Jesus are we seeing there hanging on the cross? Well, he's, he's whipped unrecognizable uh, on, the, on the road at, at Pilate's Praetorium in between Caiaphas' house and the place where Pilate hung out was also a soldier's garrison. So he's whipped mercilessly. And by this point, Jesus has probably been up 36 hours. You know, he certainly didn't sleep last night. The night before, he didn't sleep. All his friends slept, but he spent the night praying and bleeding. So he's, he's lost a lot of blood at this point. Uh, he doesn't look like any... He doesn't look human, according to Scripture. Sorry if that offends you, but that's just... Take your argument up with Scripture. That's just what it says. He was marred more than any of the sons of men. And then they force march him, tell him to carry his crossbar out, probably on the western, northwestern side of the city, out on a common road where they burn the trash. And because he's so weakened at this point, he stumbles, and the soldiers are sick and tired of this foolishness, and they turn to uh, uh, um, a man, Simon of Cyrene. And I... I, I think I think this can be healing for for people, and I, I just believe this. Simon didn't look like me and Joby. He's from North Africa. The last man to probably touch Jesus in kindness was a black man. And in my mind, I don't know that I'm right, but when we get to heaven, I'll meet him, I believe. And I think what happened in that moment is that the soldier said, you, carry that. And I believe Simon shouldered that booger. And then for some reason, I don't know, when I read this, I see Simon like giving a arm to Jesus. I, don't, I can't prove it, no. I, but I'm just saying, for some reason, the Lord put him in that place and in that moment, and he didn't look like me. And I, I don't know, I just think that that can be a beautiful healing thing. The last person to touch Jesus, black man. And he, so then he helps walk him out to the, I don't know, just a common road. And they didn't crucify people up high. They wanted him at eye level. So, plus the soldiers were lazy. They used the same standing bar, a standing tree, whatever. So they would have just nailed the, they would have taken it down. They would have nailed the crossbar to it. And then they would have stood Jesus up and just dropped him in the hole. Another thing that we've learned from archaeological digs is that all these pictures where we see Jesus nailed through here, probably not true, because it would have ripped through that flesh. Probably it went through the wrist or somewhere here in the arm. Also, those pictures you see where Jesus' feet are crossed and it's like one nail through both his feet in the front, probably not true, because they've now found nails, and they have them. I can't remember what, what museum has them, but they've now found spikes that were used in Roman crucifixions, and on the spikes are fragments of heel bone. And, and the, way that it's, the way that it's encrusted to the nail shows that they actually took the criminal's feet and spread them apart and put them on either side of the tree, and they would have nailed two nails in, one through each heel, into the tree. And if you think about that, that makes leverage different, and it makes pushing up different. Mm. So... 
when it says the carpenter lasted three hours, Jesus basically drowns in his own lung fluid because he can't push himself up and he's so weak. He's also at eye level. And when for the, those pictures that we see of Jesus where he's covered in some loincloth, not true. He's totally naked and ashamed. Not, not, he's totally naked, which means he understands our shame. Mm. And so that's one of the things the Lord allowed him, the Father allowed him to experience. We also see it because the women stood at a distance. The only woman to come close is his mother and John. Behold, behold your son. Mm. So Jesus is lifted up. He's nailed to this crossbar. Somewhere in there, one of the soldiers reaches into a, a, a vinegar jar and puts a, and I learned this from Joby, that a tersorium, because the Roman army was large, had to be fed, a well-fed army has to go to the bathroom, a bit, an army that big has to be clean. And one of the ways they were able to keep a sanitary army and a big army sanitary was this thing called a tersorium, which is a sponge on a stick, and they would dip it in vinegar and clean their backside. So I'd always thought when they dip this thing, when the soldier dips the thing in vinegar, that it was some sort of weird act of mercy or some mocking mm -hmm. thing where he's just shoving it in Jesus' mouth. Well, it was even worse than I thought because it's feces-laced vinegar, which the soldiers have been using to clean their backside, and the soldier dips the sponge in there and shoves it in my Savior's mouth. So that's where we start the crucifixion. Yeah. So the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, and you in the book talk about this is where we know that Jesus can't just be a good moral teacher or a good leader. And why is it actually quite ludicrous, honestly, to think that Jesus could just be a good leader or a good teacher based upon that statement. Yeah, I have a hard time hearing that question without my mind going to the end of uh, the first section of Mere Christianity, mm -hmm. where C.S. Lewis says some version of the man that said the sort of things this man said cannot be just a good moral teacher. He is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Mm. I mean, he claimed to be God. He claimed to forgive sin. He claimed to be there before people like David and Moses was there. He claimed that he was eternal. He claimed that he was the way, the truth, the life, and no one mm -hmm. comes to the Father except through him. All right. So either he's lying about it and he knew he wasn't, or he was crazy and he thought he was, or he is the Lord. Mm -hmm. And you can disregard him as a liar, you can spit at him as a lunatic and a fool, or you can bend your knee to him and surrender as Lord. And I think the, he wants us to know, if you, if you miss everything else, guys, I am doing this for the forgiveness of sin. Not to teach more stories, not to build nations, not for, so that families will grow up nice and treat each other well. Not just so we do unto others as others as we would have others do unto us. No, 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 no. Jesus came to die for sinners. God forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he says that as the feces-soaked vinegar sponge is being put in his mouth in mockery amongst other atrocities, he still looks down on them and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's just a different level of grace. It is a grace. I believe it's a grace imparted. Corey Timboom talks about that when she forgave her sister's murderer. I believe it was her sister's murderer. It was the it was the concentration camp officer 
who basically killed her sister. And he later came to speak somewhere. And she, he did not recognize her. She recognized him. And he stuck out his hand. And she, in that instant, forgave him. But she would later say, I think, she said something like, God will not, not ask you to forgive someone until he gives you the grace to do so. Mm. We don't need to take that the way that says, well, I just don't need to forgive anybody until I feel like it, because you're going to never feel like forgiving anybody. Forgiveness is not reasonable. Why would you forgive someone who's hurt you? Well, you forgive people because Jesus commands it five times in the Gospels. We do it because it's obedience, because he did it. Good. Yeah, and the thing is, man, I, I know we wince at all the things that the soldiers did. And a part, part of the reason we write about it so graphically is because that's what happened. It was not clean. And hopefully what happens when you think about what kind of person could take a hammer and a nail and drive it through, in Greek in the first century, anything from your elbow to your fingertip was your hand, by the way. What kind of person could do that? I tell you, me and you. I mean, you know, not literally, but figuratively speaking, we take the used toilet paper of our disobedience and try to shove it in the face of our king every time we say, forget you, I do what I want. Mm -hmm. It is that gross and grave. It's more than that. It's just because the temporary things that we can see are so limited and our our sin against a holy god is is incredible that is us i, I think about <clears throat> uh when the passion of the christ came out I, I honestly think it's a really really helpful depiction for us to get it's the first time somebody put on mm -hmm. screen mm -hmm. more than just kind of a, a like a little high school drama of what Christ would have gone through. And Mel Gibson's folks studied it hard. And the the scene in Pilate's Praetorium, I think, is it just changes the way you read flogging in the Bible, right. you know, those kind of things. Well, <clears throat> um, Mel Gibson said when it came to that scene, when they were going to nail the nails into the hands of Jesus, he couldn't have anyone else do it, so he, he did it himself. Now, it is it is a pretty good parable that that is my sin mm -hmm. that is putting him on the cross. That's what a big deal sin is. Now, which does not diminish the gospel and grace, it should exponentially increase our understanding of it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Okay, the second thing he says is, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, love this guy. Um, yeah, this is the guy I want to like eat a meal with when they ask you a question, who's someone that's dead that you want to eat a meal with? I want to eat a meal with the guy on the cross who gets to be in paradise. Give us the backdrop of why Jesus says this. There are two thieves on the cross. One, <clears throat> well, let's take it back to the mountain of Beatitudes. One is poor in spirit and one has the pride of life. One guy goes, well, one guy starts railing, right? He's like, come on, man. If you are who you say you are, do something for me. Which, by the way, is how so many people show up to church. It's really conditional. If you are who you say you are, answer my prayer, heal my kid, do whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The other guy comes with nothing but humility. We deserve to be here. And then he just, man, you want to talk about, like, the most incomplete but humble sinner's prayer? Yeah. Jesus remembered me. 
when you go before your father. And then Jesus makes this unbelievable promise by grace. This is how, this is evidence that Ephesians 2.8 is true. That it's by grace we have been saved, not by works. Because what could this guy do? He could do, all he right. did is somehow he realized Jesus is who he says he is. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing right now has the potential that he could remember me when he goes before his father. Right. He never once is like, I promise I'll do better. At what? You're dead right. today. You get, you don't get to go to Sunday school. You can't sponsor a kid. You can't nothing. And he brings to Jesus his nothing, but that's all he is, and that's all it takes for that's Jesus right. to save that guy. And <clears throat> now, anytime I, I think I've said this before in church, anytime we try to describe eternal events with chronological language, it gets weird. However, however, he says today mm-hmm. you're going to be with me in paradise today. No purgatory. That's not a thing. Some people made that up. That might be a newsflash to some of you. <laughs> I hate to ruin it for you. Actually, it's really good news. Yeah. I actually love to ruin it Today, you will be with me yeah. in paradise. So good. I feel like even when we accept, like we know in our heads that grace alone saves us, there's always still a part of us that looks at the runway between right now and death and thinks... Okay, but, you know, yeah, there's some good things. Like, even our our purest thoughts about it are still tainted in some way with this idea of works somehow add something. And this guy is, yeah, there's literally nothing he can do. Right, except die. Except die and go to heaven. Okay, the next thing is, woman, behold your son, son, behold your woman. All right, mama. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot for this part of the book (laughs) five months postpartum i'm just a puddle reading this in a coffee shop um but i feel like when you describe mary it humanizes jesus a lot for me at least reading it um and i mean of course when you walk through i mean anytime you talk about the first time you held both of your kids you just have that overwhelming in the last episode we talked about that worshipful experience, one of you felt on the mountaintop. And I, for me, I would say birth and holding our daughter for the first time. I do think it's different for a mama. Sure. And so reading this definitely was a new perspective for me. Um, but I guess I felt so much, I want to talk about the, what happened in scripture, but as I was reading this, I just felt like maybe there was a moment here for you two also as you were writing this, as you were talking about this part. What Just what was this like to write this part of the book? Well, when Mary gets the revelation from the angel, the angel warns her. The angel's like, the Bible says that she stored up all these things in her heart, but he said, this will pierce your heart. Mm-hmm. Like, she mm-hmm. knows this, this serpent crusher, this miracle baby, this one from God, whose name is Jesus. And by the way, when we sing the song like, Worthy of Your Name, Jesus means the one who saves. And so she knows, man, she's a good Jewish girl. She hears her nephew say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how's a lamb going to take away the sin? There's only one way. He's going to die. She just doesn't know when. Right. So maybe when, when she goes to him in John chapter 2, and says, hey, they're right of wine. Well, why does she do this? He hasn't done any miracles yet, because she knows he is a miracle. And she's just wondering when it's going to start. And I think when he says, 
my hour has not yet come, she's probably like, oh, thank God. Right. Because this, he is the son of God, and he's also the son of Mary. Like, that's her boy, man. And she held that little baby, and she squeezed him, and she did all the things she did. I remember when <clears throat> both of my kids, when they were real little, their hair would, before it, like, laid down, they had that little fine, like, chicken feather hair you know what i mean i don't know about that um ours is currently bald so. okay well reagan it took her a minute too. i thought she was gonna be bald through high school which i did pray through for so school. that it would okay <laughs> See, it's all right so anyway i would sit them on my lap and i would just like smell their head you know mm. you can't tell me mary didn't do that kind of stuff mm, no, that's right. well the thing we put in the book is the first things mama do when when you get that baby is you count those fingers and toes you count those little hands and those fingers and toes and so chunky i can remember looking at them thinking like i just remember thinking how little their thought their fingernails fingernail the pinky nail i'm like how's that a nail that's crazy okay and then 33 and a half years later the hands and feet that she like balled up and smelled like a mama does with any baby is now bleeding on a cross and jesus in how an unfathomable amount of pain still still cares for her the individual he's still so personal and it's still important to him to take care of his mom hanging on the cross yeah that that helps me a lot because i think a lot of us think god you're too busy for me Right, you're too big and busy running the universe. So what if I feel a little anxious right now? Right. Let me just keep that to myself. And so <clears throat> I can't remember when it landed on me. I have no idea how these things come into my brain when I read the Bible. I do know the Spirit of God does it. But I just thought, okay, I can think that in like seemingly neutral times in regards to the consummation of all things. Well, this was the pinnacle of salvation and redemption for all of human history. And yet, even in that moment, Jesus takes the time to talk about and care for mm -hmm. the physical needs of his mom, who's now not going to have the oldest son to take care of her. Mm -hmm. So he's like, John, I need your help. Which also, speculation, what if the reason John was the apostle that couldn't get killed it's because he wasn't done taking care of Mary yet. Right. I mean, brother tried to boil him. The guy was like, nope, <laughs> I, I got work for him to do. Yeah, it's good. Any thoughts it's on It's also that? how we know or we believe that Joseph was probably, Joseph had probably predeceased Jesus on the cross. Yeah. And the reason scholars say that is because Jesus is exercising his firstborn right and passing mm -hmm. it to John. And he would not have done that if Joseph was alive. So somewhere... And is somewhere between the age of 12 in the temple where he says, did you not know about must be about my father's house yep. and the cross, mm -hmm. Joseph has gone on. Well, partway through the Gospels, they quit mentioning Joseph. Like Mary's there, Mary's there, Mary's that. there. And then after like, you know, the man from Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? You know, he's the son of, aren't you the son of a carpenter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no mention of Joseph anymore, mm -hmm. so he's probably passed away. And yet Mary is traveling around. And then the reason that, and some of you might say, but I thought you said his brother was James. Why didn't you give it to James? James isn't a believer yet. James does not become a believer in Jesus until after the resurrection. Right. That's good. And again, I say it as a joke all the time. What would it take for you to believe your brother was, you know, the son of God? It would take the resurrection. And so 
Jesus knows that to put the care of his mother in the hands of a believer is infinitely more important than to put mm-hmm. the care of his mother into a non-believer's hands, even though the dude was his brother. Mm-hmm. And she is his mom, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just love this little... It's in the middle of his seven statements, and it's just such a tender moment and a a tender reminder of... He cares about it all, and he mm-hmm. wants all of us, our littlest cares, to, you know, Father, forgive them for their crucifying me and, you know, and everything in between. I think it speaks, too, to his nature, because somehow we as people tend to think, Lord, I don't want to bother you with my little piddly prayer, because I know you got a lot going on right now. Like, I know there's war on the on the planet, and, there, you know, there's starvation, and so we 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 put we we project this idea onto him that he's got big important things going on and that takes all of his energy and all of his attention and all of his ability. So when we bug him with something little like I don't know name your little prayer we we feel like we have to make some sort of excuse for it. Mm. But what we've just done is we've put a limitation on who he is. Is he upholds all things by the word of his power. He spoke everything that we can see, feel, touch, taste into existence with his, with his mouth. Mm. The, it says in Revelation, when the, when the foundations of the earth give way, his throne is still standing. Why? Because the earth doesn't uphold his throne. His truth and his righteousness do. So I, I think that if we, you said this in the first week, you said we have a, we have an incomplete view of our own sin, and we have an incomplete view of the, the nature and identity and entirety of God. And if we had, it would help us a lot to have, if, let, me re, let, me, let me pull it back to me. It would help me a lot if I had a better view of my own sin and a better view of who he is because it would change how I pray. Right. I wouldn't make excuses for going to him with the little things. I would, as a child, like my children when they were little, they didn't care if I was working on the, whatever. You know, they would just barge in my room. Mm-hmm. They were like, just come on in, hop up in my lap. Yeah. Why? Because I'm their, I'm their dad. I think he, I, I mean, I think he wants the same from us. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in his tenderness towards Mary in that moment, he's, he's redeeming mankind. <laughs> right. He's, he's making Sorry. payment to satisfy the wrath of God. He's busy. He's crushing the serpent. And yet he's got time for his mom. So what if you thought about it this way? God could exert 100% of his energy on something and simultaneously still have 100% of his energy to exert on whatever he wanted. Mm -hmm. God could focus all of his attention on one singular thing Mm -hmm. and still have all of his attention to focus on whatever else he wanted to. That's and right. he could do that an infinite amount of times. That's right. So Revelation 8, 1, I think. I'm almost positive. There's a lot going on. There's locusts. Stars are getting wiped out of the sky. There's horses, four horsemen. There's death. There's all kind of stuff. Dude. There's trumpets and seals. and It's crazy. <laughs> and then in Roman, I mean, Revelation 8, 1. God says, shh, and all of heaven is quiet for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you go, well, why? why? Why do you shut down the consummation of all 
of creation. What are you doing? And the Bible says that the priests have lit the prayers of incense. In other words, the prayers of God's people are rising up to him, and he stops everything. Mm. I want to hear the prayers of my kids. Love that. Yeah, that's it. I love that. I'm sure the analogy breaks down somewhere, but um, you've talked about this, and you say it in the book, how when you have your first kid, you wonder, could I love a second kid just as much? And you say, love is an inexhaustible resource. Mm -hmm. So I almost think about it that way, like, yeah, he's able to do both and all the time, every day. Correct. 24 hours a day. Okay, the next thing he says is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's talk about what this means. So this I is think where a lot it gets of people, good, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't fully understand what this means. So I'd really like to unpack what does it mean, what's happening to him right now. This is one of those things that I literally have never heard preached about. You know what I mean? Which I don't understand how. Okay, so one of the things that drove me crazy for the longest time is when you read through the account of the crucifixion of Christ, there was no description of the crucifixion of Christ. All it says is, and they crucified him. And then um, I would commentators would say, well, they didn't have to explain it because everybody knew what would happen. Yeah, but that's, so, that's true about all the other events, but it gets right. a whole lot of description. And then I also know that Jesus, being a master teacher rabbi, would use these rabbinical tricks like he does in John chapter 3, like he does in a bunch of places. Um, and we talked about the John 3 one in Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. And so he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you flip back to Psalm 22, that's the first line in that psalm. This is what is called a remez. We talked about this. And a remez is when a rabbi would use a part of a verse, and then in your mind you know the rest of the verse. I think the reason that there's such little ink in the Gospels describing the crucifixion is because it's already been inked in Psalm 22. Mm -hmm. I mean, bro, play by play, blow by blow. Everything from the piercing to the flocking to the I thirst to, uh, to the resurrection to us being believers. The bulls have surrounded me. You, you just can't. It's crazy. Right, right, right. And I think that's what's happening on the cross. I think Jesus is preaching the gospel by pointing all those there that would have had Psalm 22 memorized, which, by the way, even if you weren't at like the high level of like Pharisee where you'd memorize the whole Bible, you would, you would be well acquainted with the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, and you would have sung the Psalms at temple multiple days a week, your whole life. And you know how it's much easier to memorize a song than just like mm. prose. And so I'm, I'm believing the majority of the Jewish people there are going, oh my goodness, this I know this one. And what if, I mean, can you imagine you're standing there and you're like, hold on, I know the words of this song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bulls encompass me, right? Men wag their fingers at me. Men wag their tongues at me. And you look over and the Roman soldier right in that second goes, you saved others, save yourself. That's literally what it says in Psalm 22. And you're like, what? He was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, so the problem with that is when David wrote it, crucifixion is not a human reality. Mm -hmm. 
it won't be invented for hundreds of years later by like the Persians and then the Babylonians took it and then the Romans perfected it. And so a part of the way, if Rome was the largest empire in world history to that point. So how in the world do you keep people under control from basically like Eastern Russia to England? And you don't have Apache helicopters that you can send out and you don't have a, you know, here's how. You intimidate them to the point yeah, where nobody gets out of line. Yeah. So you crucify them. And they perfected it, man. And you're, you're going through Psalm 22 in your mind, and as you're going through it in your mind, you literally are seeing it right in front of you, down to the very last thing when he says, it is finished or it shall be done. So what does it mean that Jesus receives God's wrath? Like, what is that? Physically, like, what is he experiencing, and what does that mean for us in that moment? Because that's what he's saying, right? God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? According to John 17, up until that moment, he and the Father had known unhindered and unfettered fellowship. He says that at the very end of John 17. He says, I've made known to them your name, and then I believe the name of the revelation of Jesus to us that he re- revealed about God was is, is God as Father. He says it 189 times. And then he says, so that the love with which you and I have known one another, they might know. So up until the moment on the cross, for all of eternity past, Jesus has only known unhindered love with the Father. Okay, But Jesus pays our debt and all of our sin and shame. And up until that moment, he's never known rejection. So up until that moment, he can't, as your high priest, empathize with you if you've been rejected or abandoned at birth or rejected by a loved one or whomever, whatever. He can't empathize with you because he's never known it. I'm of the camp that says rejection is the deepest wound of the human soul. Why do I say that? Because it's the last thing Jesus suffered on the cross. I the can't. Way, it's, also the, it's also the fundamental wound of the enemy. If you think about our enemy, I think the reason that the, however you just said it, the deepest wound. Yeah, I think it's the deepest wound of the human soul. Well, I think I think the enemy goes after it all the time because he knows what it is because he tried to overthrow the throne and then he got kicked out, rejected mm, because of what he did. And so he knows what that feels like. Right. And he knows that's the worst thing he's ever done in his life. So then when that happens to you, he's like, that's what I'm going to yeah. latch on to. Oh. It is so the, Jesus becomes rejection. Yes, on the cross, he made him who knew no sin to be made sin or become sin. The thing about that that it, the thing that it does for us, is it allows all of us who have in some way known or experienced rejection to know that Jesus alone can empathize with us at our deepest and our most painful most most rejected place he's he's able because he has been there's a scripture somewhere in the old testament i can't remember where it says it but it's god speaking of he said i for a little while i turned my eyes away from you it's describing that moment on the cross i think the father allows jesus well i i I believe the father allows jesus to no rejection in that moment because until then he'd never known it. Mm-hmm. But if he doesn't, then Jesus can't identify with us because he's never known rejection. Mm-hmm. 
now he's known the rejection of the father for when he didn't deserve it. He's, he's the epitome of the victim. Mm -hmm. He really did nothing wrong. And too, in the empty tomb, then he's also going to know the reconciliation and what it means to be brought back into right relationship with God. Because right. that is the reason that Paul says and Jesus says that we are going to be like over the angels is because they have never experienced reconciliation with the Father. Because they've never sinned. They've never been mm -hmm. out of right relationship. And they've never, they, Jesus did not die for them because mm -hmm. he didn't need to. So there's difference, man. We have like a, a firstborn status, a first son status with the Father because of all that's happening in this moment. So good. Okay, the next thing he says is, I thirst, which is another uh, head nod to Psalm 22. Correct. Which, this had me go down a rabbit hole, which we don't have to stay here for long, but David wrote Psalm 22. Correct. What was it like for him to write this psalm? Like, do you think he sensed like what he was writing, or I don't? I don't know. Uh, yeah, no. I mean, I think he's writing about what's going on right around him. I'm a king. These people are surrounding me. They want to kill me. They want to. But because David is not just writing in his flesh about the things that are going on in him. There is a supernatural element of prophetic truth that there's no way he could understand fully what he's talking about. Right. Maybe he's sensing a spirit. Also, look at the spirit of God in the beginning. And it's the very first verb used in scripture. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I would, as a writer, I would love to know how David did what he did a thousand years before Jesus, but the Holy Spirit knew full well what he was mm -hmm. doing. So he's allowing David to write what David thinks is a psalm for his day and time. The Holy Spirit is using his pen to script what he will need a thousand years later and then 3,000, 4,000, whatever, 3,000 years later for us. And there's some things that David wrote that he knew were not true of himself. I have loved you at my mother's breast. I ha That's impossible. Right. No, 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 you haven't. You're an adulterer and a murderer. Right. No, you haven't. <laughs> the only thing, the only one that can be true of is the only one born sinless, and that is Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's crazy, isn't it? Like, thank God David did not let his head get in the way of how God was guiding his heart and hands when he was writing this thing down. Yes. Um, so... You mentioned, and we, and we talked a little bit about Isaiah 53, which we actually unpacked in our, our passion service last week, but Isaiah says it pleased the Father to crush him. What does that mean? That means that a part of God's preordained redemptive plan for the renewal of all things and the redemption of everyone who would believe that he had already planned out before the foundations of time. He knew he would be most glorified if he sent his son, put on flesh, came, and was just and the justifier. Mm. And so uh, some theologians talk about a dual nature of God, which I think has some merit to it, like like um, 
like there's your ultimate will and then there's the specific will. And so I don't think God the Father is a yippee, I get to kill my son Jesus. That's not what it means. Right. It means for my glory, this is the most redemptive act in all of human history, and I will be gloried in it. And to that end, it pleased the Father. Hmm. In as much as it would like, I mean, every analogy breaks down, but it pleases you. You got grown kids, at least one. You got like one and a half, two, almost <laughs> maybe two and a half. I mean, you know, you got one just started college, one in Okay. It pleases you to look and say, the discipline that I have enacted upon these boys have raised them into God-fearing men. So there's that kind of pleasing. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you you were excited to whip them when they were messing up. Sure. Okay. So there's this level of, for God's glory, he knew what he was doing, and he knew what was on the other side of it, and he was pleased to do it. The other thing you got to think about, man, when the Bible says uh, Jesus, for the joy set before him, did not despise the cross, well, what was, what's the joy? Eternity with your Father in heaven? He already had that before he came. Short answer, he loved you so much that he was willing to die on the cross for you. Amen. You're the joy that, he, that was set before him. That's right. That's crazy to think about. That is crazy. Even in Psalm 22, when it talks about to a people yet unborn. Like, that's oh, us today. That's us. Isn't that crazy? Crazy. I even, I had to go, I read through Psalm 22, because I'm like, does this really say this? <laughs> you read the book and then went to Psalm 22? Good. I, I mean, I you... believed you, but I just wanted to see it there in ink, because it's just like, it's just undeniable. It's, it's awesome. Okay, next thing he says is, it is finished. Which again, Psalm 22, that he has done. I also looked at that because I wanted to make sure you knew what you were talking about. Um, yeah, it's, the only difference is like a verb tense. In Hebrew, it says it shall be finished. And then in, in uh, Greek, he says past tense. It, it is, it has been finished. And didn't you talk about in the book that um, that is what shows us that he didn't mean it's finished, like I'm dead and this is done because of the verb tense in Psalms. It's shown, it's points to no, actually like it is finished, meaning the payment has been satisfied. Correct. Which, which is the word to tell I mean, that's right. what it means. Yeah. We translated it as finished. And then, um, archeologists have found first century bank records that when a debt was paid in full, they had a stamp and they would stamp it on there to say to tell us paid in full. He didn't, that. he didn't say he was finished. Right. He said it is finished. Mm -hmm. So good. And you got it tattooed on your arm because in Jerusalem. Wow. Did you know that? I didn't actually have the oldest tattoo parlor in the world right now. Wow. It's over a thousand years old. Are the people that work there also old? Yeah, they're a thousand years old too. <laughs> but it's the same family, been passed down all those years. Wow, that's very cool. Super cool. Super fun fact. Okay. And here's why I did it, man. I did it right there because when I gripped my podium, we talked about a few weeks ago the whispers, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when he's up there, when the enemy's trying to just whisper the lies, I literally just look and be like, hey, man. That's awesome. And all the things that fall under the category of it, your lies are one of them. They're finished. They have no power over me. Amen. You're That's like good. a dragon with a mortal head wound. You can flail around for a little while, but you got nothing on me. That's right. That's good. 
Okay, and the last thing he says is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it says, to the shock of those who loved him. Or I can't, the scripture, or maybe you wrote that in the book, but why was this still a shock to those who loved him? Because God died. I'm telling you, no matter how much, I mean, think about this, man. The disciples just never, I mean, they're just over and over and over and over, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said over and over and over, I'm going to be handed over to the chief right. priest. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be crucified. Third day, I'm going to be resurrected. And it just right over their head. So they don't have a category that God would die. Mm-hmm. And it's very important, though, that Jesus gives up his spirit. It was not taken from Correct. him. Correct. He laid down his life, mm-hmm. period. And in their eyes, he, he lost. Correct. So for the next three days... They think they have this movement that's going to take on Rome, and this this is the kingdom that he's ushering. And that's in their mind. I think that's where they're thinking. And then they watch him die, and he's hanging up there, dripping. His eyes are still open, but the life that was in there moments before is gone, and they are crushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the enemy thinks he won right there too. And his friends take him down, right, and and bury him. For sure. Well. A couple, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple, by the way. Think about that. We talk about this in staff behind the scenes. We always need a lane in the discipleship process for people who are not yet ready to do all the things that we think you need to be to be a disciple. Because Joseph turns out, Joseph of Arimathea turns out to be a, I mean, a true disciple. Yeah. Um, yeah, they they. They use their bargaining powers to get the body down because they're, they're, they're trying to beat Sabbath, man. Mm-hmm. So they don't break his legs because Psalm 22 said they wouldn't. So they take a spear and make sure he's dead and mm-hmm. jab it under his rib. The Bible says blood and water flows, which means that his heart sack was pierced. And in Psalm 22, it says his heart melted like wax. I mean, what does that mean? I know it's like poetic. I mean, you're sad, but then a thousand years later, right. his heart drips away like wax. Yeah, and then they brought him down, and somebody had to close his eyes and prepare his body for the tomb. And what was happening during the three days before he rises? Oh, look at you. There's a lot. <laughs> they hide. So in the in the temporal, they're thinking, uh oh, and the reason they're hiding is this, man. As goes the leader, goes the team. So if you're Peter, James, and John, you're thinking, well, they came after him with swords. Surely they're coming after us next with right. swords. That's going on. Are you going to Peter? Yeah. First yeah. Peter three. Yeah. <laughs> Peter's going to say that he's doing Jesus is doing some things in the heavenlies that we don't even know about. He's putting death to death is what he's doing. Hmm. We see that in Hebrews. Mm-hmm. He makes payment in a heavenly temple. But Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, which is beautiful. That points all the way back to Exodus. I brought you to myself. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
I, 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 folks can argue with me, whatever, but I think that when Jesus died here, his work wasn't, his work wasn't finished elsewhere. And I think he descended into hell and he commenced putting a, a butt whooping hmm. on Hades. And the evidence that we have is he walks out with the keys of death and hell dangling hmm. from his belt. And I think he gave those souls in hell a chance to believe. And I don't know who came with him, but I think some came with him. It does say that when he was resurrected, that the tombs emptied. And they can't explain it, but that dead people were appeared. I don't know. The only evidence I have that he went down there is First Peter 3, but I do think he, he went and preached to the souls in hell mm. and gave them the chance to believe. Our Western understanding is a little different than the first century. Like when the Bible talks about heaven or paradise and Hades, and those are not like the eternal resting places forever and ever. They're like waiting rooms for the new heavens, the new earth, and the lake of fire. Okay? So this is how, if chronologically you've got to get your mind around, how in the world, in Romans chapter 3, that uh, because of God's forbearance, he passed over former sins. Um. How does Abraham and the people of the Old Testament get saved? Here's how they get saved. They put their faith in the coming Christ. They don't know his name yet, but they put their faith in a sacrificial lamb will die in my place. Mm. They have a holding place in what we would call heaven. Jesus, between crucifixion and resurrection, this is a lot to try to squeeze in here, between crucifixion (laughs) and resurrection goes into these heavenlies, both heaven and Hades, I think he goes to Hades to be like, look at my face. This is who you deny. Now you're going to be in the eternal lake of fire forever and ever one day, mm-hmm. death to death. He does go into an afterlife of people that have put their faith in the one true God right. in, a, in a forward faith of a Messiah that would come, right? There's going to be one that comes, a son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And he goes and he goes, ta-da, it's me, <laughs> Moses, Elijah. All the boys are like, that's you? Cool, Okay. And then one day in the consummation, the book of Revelation, all of that goes away, the temporary waiting rooms. There's a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, a new earth, and there is an eternal lake of fire, and it's a once and final, everybody that rejects Jesus goes there forever and ever, amen. In our English language, we typically just say heaven and hell. Right. It's more nuanced, I think, in the New Testament chronologically. Okay. So he's doing some of that stuff in those three days. Okay. And then he's back, out of the grave, and I love, which I had never heard this, the folded napkin tradition. Tell us about it. It's so good. Yeah, so uh, the details, we mentioned this weeks ago, but the details around the resurrection is not a made-up story. And I could go on and on about evidence of, you know, the historicity, that the fact that the tomb is empty, but... One of the things that you see is that in, in first century culture, there'd be a bunch of people around the table when they were eating. And if you were done eating, you would like lay your napkin. You'd kind of like we do today. You'd kind of crumple it up and you'd just throw it on top of your plate. Whoever was waiting the tables kind of thing would say, this person is done. If you were going to leave, but you were going to be back, you would fold your napkin and so that the serve staff could say, he's coming back. Well, the writers of the Gospels let us know that the face covering of Jesus was folded neatly mm-hmm. in the place that he lay. It's crazy. It's so good. Because he's coming back. 
he's in he, the details. I just, he's in the details. All the details matter. And even the smallest things have massive implications, like the folded garments. I just love it. What about the details of the two angels sitting on either end? Just like the Ark of the Covenant like, yeah. and the mercy seat the mercy beneath. Seat's between the hilasterium. The, the place of God's presence where he will meet with us. So when they walk in the tomb, there are two angels and Jesus is not there. The, the, the face covering is folded. also love that he first appears to Mary. I think mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I think of all the people. I mean, you know, like, why, why didn't he come back to Peter, John, whatever. Like, who do, but he comes back to this brokenhearted woman who... He loved dearly. She loved him. I'm not saying anything was inappropriate. Jesus was was without sin. There have been folks who, there have been writers who've claimed that he somehow had something to do with her. I am not in that camp. I'm just saying that he had, he was busy, and yet he came back, and the first person he appears to is this brokenhearted woman. And I think the reason is because Scripture says it says he, he drove seven demons out of Mary. And so when she sees him die, I think she's thinking, are they coming back? Because if he couldn't defeat them, if, like ultimately, then then I'm a I'm about I've got a whole lot of bad stuff about to happen to me. And she is brokenhearted that he's gone, but she's also I think really wrestling with this question: Are they coming back? And I think Jesus wanted to answer that question for her as soon as he shows up. Mm, and I love the. You know, she thinks he's the gardener, and wherever you put the body, and he says, Mary, and she sees him, and I think she went spider monkey. I think she jumped on him and hugged him and just mm -hmm. kissed him and, like, got up all in his business. And Because any he's of like, us. Don't touch me. Don't right. Touch me. <laughs> exactly. I haven't yet been to my father. Hold on. But I think she would, because any of us would have. Because in that moment, she now knows and realizes, okay, everything he told us, it's true. And everything he did is for real. And if you go to the place where we believe the empty tomb is, there's two options. One is a Catholic tourist stop um, in the ray. They found that place uh, was Constantine's grand, no, Constantine's mom in about 350 AD or so, kind of fell down this hole and said she saw Jesus down there. And so that's what they said was the okay. empty tomb. It's there's some things there. <laughs> and then in like the late 1800s, uh, Horatio Spafford, the guy that wrote It Is Well With My Soul, was living in the west side, uh, in, the, in the, the outer wall of Jerusalem. There's like an apartment there. And he had another guy staying with him. And they look out the window and they see this mountain that looks like the face of a skull. And they're like, what if that's, what if that's Golgotha? So just in case, they get some money together and they go buy it, and along with it comes a garden. But you can't see the garden at that point. It's a Muslim bus station now, hmm. the place where Jesus was probably crucified, mm -hmm. which bothers you at first, and then when you really dig into the Scriptures, you go, eh, this is probably more like it, what it was, mm -hmm. just people coming and going and, mm -hmm. you know. Then they start kind of excavating down the side of this mountain that is the mountain with the skull face in it. And Golgotha means the place of the skull. And then they excavated this first century tomb that was hewn out of the rock. There were two places where you would lay a body. One isn't finished yet, like it's a new tomb, 
And Joseph of Arimathea's tomb had never been used, mm-hmm. which means maybe it wasn't quite finished. Mm-hmm. And when the disciples would kneel down to see it, you wouldn't be able to see a body if it was put right around the corner, but like cat a corner to you, that's where you could see the body. It's also in a garden just behind it. There's a first century garden where they would crush grapes right there to make wine. And wouldn't it be just like God that even through the Roman Empire, through the Byzantine period, through the Dark Ages, through Muslim occupation, through all the wars that have happened in Jerusalem, that he would preserve this one little spot where his son walked out of the tomb. So good. And so you can go there today and see it. I hope to. We're getting to the end of our time, and I'm just reminded, and we've said this in previous episodes, but the phrase, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible, is not just a cute phrase to put on a coffee cup. And when we talk about the realities of the crucifixion and what was happening during those three days and the garments being folded and the angels, you it's like this is all impossible and it's like no this actually happened which i hope is an encouragement to everyone listening that you it is true if the tomb is empty anything is possible because all of that without god without this being a pure orchestrated event by a heavenly creator Mm -hmm. is impossible and the most impossible thing because it is possible for prodigals to come back with or without God. It is possible for marriages to be healed without... It is, man. People figure that stuff out. Mm-hmm. You know what the most impossible thing is? For a traitorous race to be reconciled with a holy king. That's right. Impossible. Mm-hmm. Except Jesus came on a rescue mission, died in our place. He didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. And then he put death to death, and he came out of the grave. And because he came out of the grave, we get to walk out of that grave too. That's right. And... We serve a living Savior, a living King. And just like Mary was crying and she couldn't figure out her life and what she was going to do with her life, and she says, she didn't, she didn't recognize him, and she says, where have you put him? And when he calls her name, everything comes into focus. Mm. And all of us were traitors against the Holy King. And the, the resurrected Savior came after you and me and called our name, and then everything came into focus. And we got saved. How? Because if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. The epilogue is so good. If you haven't read the epilogue, you should read it. And you, you say at the end, so how do you live? Do you live like the tomb is empty? And um, could you just give some final words, what you hope, now that the series has come to an end and the book is, I mean, just beginning its life and journey, um, but as we just come to a close, any closing thoughts for anyone listening? Yeah, if you pay attention to what Jesus did before he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. He meets with Mary, then he shows up in this locked room. The disciples are freaking out. He says, don't be afraid, because they're pretty freaked out, because he was dead, they, now he's alive. And then the Bible says he breathes on them, just... And I'm... I'm about 99% sure what he is doing is he is starting creation all over again. Amen. The first Adam didn't do it, mm-hmm. but I have come to do what Adam failed at. I am reclaiming my kingdom, and I am breathing the ruach of life into each one of you. Mm-hmm. Now, so hang out for a minute. I got a gift. 
the Spirit of God. When I say, do you live as if Jesus is still in the tomb? Another way to say that is, do you live a life of a belief system that lacks the power of the indwelling Spirit in your life? A powerless kind of Christianity, because that is not what we have been called to do. Right. I mean, Pentecost happens, the Spirit of God falls on them, and then they go about the Father's business doing what Jesus has told them to do. And that's the kind of life that we, we have been commissioned to live, that we follow a living Savior. And this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent His Son as the propitiation, the payment that satisfies. Which means this, what the empty tomb tells us is that if you believe in Jesus, God cannot be dissatisfied in you. Because dissatisfaction has to do with surprise. He's not disappointed in you because he knew exactly what he was getting Mm -hmm. when he breathed that new life into you. Mm -hmm. And when we sin, when we stumble and fall, he's not surprised. That's why he sent Jesus out to die on the cross. Now don't wallow in it. Don't make excuses for it. Get up, repent, and know that he delights in you. Right. And then I ended with uh, this event that happened in our life. Gretchen and I got invited to eat dinner with Dr. Billy Graham. I mean, right on the very beginnings of the church launching. And the only way I know to explain all the events that happened there, I mean, first of all, good gracious, it was incredible. I get to eat with Dr. Graham. He was so sweet and kind and funny. And it was more than what I would thought, okay, but... And I'm not saying he's some kind of like modern-day apostle, capital A, like the Bible guys, but at the end of our meal, we asked him to pray for us, and he prayed for us. And something happened. Mm. Something, I don't, it's hard to, something shifted in the way Gretchen and I saw our roles in our church, in this city, and for the rest of our lives. Mm. And... It is my deep desire that God would use the words on the pages of this book, If the Tomb is Empty, that some things would shift in people's life, and they would realize that God delights over his children. No doubt. And I thank you for that. And you can at least rest assured that one person, me, has felt the delight of the Lord through this book, through our conversations, and through your sermons, truly. it's It's been amazing, and I know there are countless people who are feeling the same thing, so it's it's so good. Charles, will you pray for us as we close out our time together? And I, I just thank you as well. It's just been um, amazing to watch the relationship between you. I know everyone has just enjoyed seeing. It's so clear how this really worked so well between the two of you to to write this book. Um, and just thank you for your willingness and your friendship with Pastor Joby and um, to serve in this way. It's just, it's being multiplied in discipleship. Yeah, and before you pray, this dude was an absolute godsend in my life for more than just a book. Yeah. I mean, what an incredible, accomplished, humble writer, but also, man, loves the Word, knows the Word. Some of these things we're talking about, like Hades and all, I mean, you know, there's, these are the kind of conversations we would have in between writing, like, what do you think about this? And one of the questions we talked about was like, all right, when Jesus is resurrected from the grave, and the Bible says these dead people come out of the tombs, like, 
what happened to them? We need to figure that out. Okay, so anyway, we'd have all those kind of conversations. But also, we've mentioned we've mentioned several times now about one of my best friends passing away, Brad Bowen. Well, little did I know <clears throat> that God was putting this dude in my life mm-hmm. at just the right time to to fill a significant role mm-hmm. that I needed, and that's right. another brother in Christ to do this life with. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Will you pray for us? Lord Jesus, we... <clears throat> We thank you. We thank you that you let us. I mean, Lord, we, we're all broken. We all walk with a limp, and half the time we don't know what we're doing. And, and yet you let us join you in what you are doing. Yeah. And you call us, and you equip us, and you appoint us, and you anoint us, and you give us one another. And So, Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for this book. I, I as, a, as a member of this church, this body, this movement, I thank you for Joby. I thank you for what you've put in him. I thank you for allowing me and all of us to kind of glean, you know, the what you poured into and through him. And mm-hmm. we thank you for this. We thank you for this book, and we 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 offer it to you. It's Lord, your word says it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. So today we just lay this book on your altar, and we pray that it would go. You know, and you would use it however you want to use it. That that we one day, years, decades from now, we'll get to heaven and hug people's necks who who got there because you put this book in their hands and they they read it. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we bless this book and we bless those who would read it. We ask that your Spirit would go in it, through it, and that you would just sovereignly appoint you know just a, just divine times to drop it into their hands. Lord, we we're just we're just grateful that you would use us. We thank you for Allie. Lord, we pray that you would bless her and her husband and their their baby. And, and we thank you for how she's blessed us in this time. And I don't know what you got planned for her, but she's really good at this. So I, I pray that you let her do more of this, Lord. So, Father, we love you. And we worship you and you alone. For you alone are King and God and Savior and the, our justifier and sanctifier and the lover of our souls. In Jesus' name.